If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, April the 12th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guests today here in the Hoover studio deep in the heart of Stanford University's campus are Eric Hanischek, the Hoover Institution's Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow, a member of Hoover's Correct Task Force on K-12 Education, and a leader in the development of the economic analysis of educational issues. And he is joined by Margaret Mackey Raymond, a Hoover Institution Distinguished Research Fellow and Founder and Director of the Stanford-based Center for Research on Education Outcomes, or CREDO for short. Rick and Mackey, thanks for coming to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. CREDO turns 20 in 2019, Mackey. Yes, I know. What are the highlights of CREDO so far? Well, first we pronounce it CREDO. CREDO. My apologies. No worries. Um, CREDO's actually had a great run. Uh, it's had a phenomenal opportunity to... Uh, engage with rigorous empirical examination of pretty important potential improvements in K through 12 education in the United States and through partnerships that we've had with uh, both a wide range of funders and state education agencies mm -hmm. we've actually been uniquely positioned to be able to provide a lot of insight into what is working and what is not working in efforts to improve outcomes for kids. Very good. Rick, you wrote an article for uh, Hoover's Eureka magazine last summer, and I'd like to read a passage of it to you. You wrote, quote, Tests of students indicate the skills to be found in the labor force of state. Research shows that the skills of workers in each state are closely related to the evolution of the state economy. In simplest terms, states with a more skilled labor force grow faster than those with fewer skilled workers. And you identified teachers and leadership as the challenge for states moving forward. Would you like to expand on that? Sure, I would. Uh, this follows from a lot of international work which shows that countries with better labor forces grow faster. And with a couple co-authors, we attempted to see whether that also holds for states where we have lots of mobility and so forth. There's a lot of technical issues behind it, but the simple fact is that the quality of the labor force determines much of the future growth. And so what we see is that uh, states that have good education systems are likely to be better off economically in the future. Now that doesn't hold exactly because some states can borrow from other states, borrow workers from other states through migration. And in fact, that's been the California story, that California has been able to borrow good workers as opposed to produce their own. Interesting. What state or states in America get this, get the nexus between education and economics? Well, I think that there are a number that are pushing in that direction. Massachusetts uh, is a state that has highlighted the importance of education for now two decades, mm -hmm. and they've managed to have a consistent set of policies across administrations of different parties and very different uh, governors and elected officials. They have kept uh, focus on quality education, and it's paid off. Now, other states have also tried to uh, focus on education, have been a little bit more erratic, and then other states quite ignore it. I had John Taylor on this podcast a, a few weeks ago, and I asked him a simple question, what drew you to economics? And he said, as a young man attending Princeton, it just 
caught his fancy and he went from there. What attracted the two of you to education and education reform? Well, I got into education as a graduate student when I was in my PhD program at MIT. In the middle of it, when I was looking for a thesis topic, something called the Coleman Report was produced, which was the massive federal government report that suggested that schools really had very little to do with achievement of kids, that the only thing that mattered was families or maybe the peers or friends in the schools. And I thought that was a wacky kind of conclusion. How could it be that we put so much emphasis and, and time into schools and that they weren't important? And so as a thesis, I started working on the topic of education, and then it all happened from there. And Maggie? So I have a different route to it. Um, I've always been interested in the development of competitive markets. And uh, I was a political scientist graduate student at the University of Rochester. And a certain economics professor named Eric Hanischek, who was one of my professors, um, sort of challenged me to think about um, education as the sort of last standing monopoly. I'd already worked on a variety of other uh, sectors. I'd done telecommunications and public electric utilities and healthcare and trucking and airline deregulation. And he challenged me to think about education as uh, another example of a monopoly that was using its um, grip to advance the interests of the participants in the monopoly, but not necessarily producing uh, strong social outcomes for kids. And when I realized that this could be actually the opportunity to test all the things I'd learned in all of these other industries, I got very interested in that. Um, I have to say, I, I didn't come to it from a, a sort of moral or ethical argument, although once I got into it, I certainly saw that the kind of harm that uh, intransigent school districts are creating for students, uh, you know, creating essentially uh, a blight for the rest of their lives, um, it did become sort of a moral and ethical question in addition to this sort of fascinating economic problem. The first city, uh, the first charter school in America to open was the... Uh, Minnesota Teachers School. Right. 26 years ago, 1992. That's the same year that a movie comes out called A Few Good Men. And what is the signature line from that movie? Jack Nicholson saying, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> what is the truth about charter schools? Wow, what a setup. Uh, so the, the truth about charter schools is that they are uh, able to use the flexibility that they get under their authorizing legislation to allocate resources as they see fit. So they are exempt from a lot of the strictures that school traditional school districts impose on schools. Mm -hmm. uh, with that, um, they're supposed to be able to design and implement school programs that are effective for the students that they educate. That flexibility could take the form of lots of different kinds of staffing or a different school year or a different curricular focus or whatever. Um, with that flexibility, what we see is that charter schools on average are slightly better, and I do mean slightly, at the average, slightly better than uh, traditional public schools. But what's really interesting is that the distribution reveals that this flexibility that people have, this opportunity to innovate, re reveals both a group of schools that do really badly with that flexibility, and the law has provisions for taking care of that. Uh, and they have these amazing exemplars of what you can do with resources in order to customize education solutions for kids that move them forward dramatically. And so about a third of the charter schools are doing much worse than the district schools with which they compete. 
and about 25% are doing much, much better. We can have an opportunity to learn what the better schools are doing, and I think the law obligates us to take a look at the schools that are not doing well. And if that is the truth, then what are the mistruths about charter schools? In other words, what are, what are sort of, the, in your opinion, the fallacies that are offered against them? Okay, well remember that I said at the beginning I don't have a whole lot of time to mm -hmm. get into this, so I'll have to just hit the highlights. Okay. Uh, the highlights are, uh, one, charter schools are not public schools. That's right. one myth. Right. No, they are. They receive public funding. Uh, two is that they are somehow uh, the machination and plotting of billionaires and uh, an effort to privatize education. As I said before, they, are, they remain public schools. They always will be. And the majority of the funding that they receive comes through public sources. They, like district schools, are able to fundraise privately and many public school districts do that very, very well. Many charter schools do that well. Um, and I think the third thing is that this myth is that they are somehow stealing from the districts um, with whom they compete. And the notion here is that somehow there is an, a God-given right by a district to control all the resources in, in public education. And yet if individual families choose to leave the district or remove their student from a district school and send them to private school, there doesn't seem to be the same sort of outcry from districts that they're being harmed. And yet, when the student transfers from a district school to a charter school, the, the cry is that somehow this is a, a massive plot to try to undermine districts. Let's talk a bit about the about where the movement stands at age 26. I, I looked at the state of Indiana, for example, which just did a report. It showed that charter school students typically get better letter grades. On the other hand, only about 4% of Indiana students attend charter schools. North Carolina is interesting. Charter schools have doubled over the last decade, but the state has actually seen a decline in application and opening of schools. The Walton Family Foundation the other day, Rick and Mackey, just announced it's going to make $300 million available in the form of a couple of loans to help more charter schools expand. So you see progress on the one hand, but then you also see that perhaps progress is not occurring the way it should. Analyze it for us, if you could, at age 26. Sure. I'd also invite Professor Hanischek to jump in here. Um, so one thing I think is, is a, a limiting factor is that many of the charter schools are, are finding that it's very difficult to find uh, the necessary human capital to drive growth. Uh, even a decade ago with the downturn in the economy, there were all kinds of really talented people who decided to give a few years of their lives to go into uh, teaching in the charter space. They were excited about the mission. They thought it was a challenge. They thought it was, frankly, good for the resume. Um, and those folks have done their five to seven or ten years of teaching and now are looking to go on and do other things. Um, there isn't a ready supply of their replacements. And partly that's uh, because the economy has improved and partly because uh, there's just a volume problem at this point. Um, the second thing is that it's really difficult to find school leaders, and this is where uh, Hanushek's work has really become you know, sort of a pivotal ingredient in the discussion about how to um, make the charter growth more robust than we've seen in the last few years. Do you want to chime in on that? Well, I think in terms of leaders, we have to say that we aren't really sure how to produce a good charter school leader, which is much like in the traditional public schools too. Right. But there, they're so much more dependent upon the quality of their leaders in some ways than a bad principal you can replace. A bad charter school leader might bring down the whole school. So that's, that's a problem. 
The other thing that I would point out in talking about the sort of slowdown in growth in some ways is that the discussion here has suggested that there's just one kind of charter school across the whole country. Mm-hmm. It turns out that every state has a separate law uh, that refers to what has to be done to start a charter school, how many can be had, and so forth. So that there are various regulations that control and limit the expansion of charter schools. And there are still a number of states that do not have any charter schools at all by state law. Right. Uh, There was a news report uh, yesterday that Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, uh, donated $7 million of his own dollars, $7 million to a group called, let me get this right, Families and Teachers for Antonio Villaraigosa for (coughs) Governor 2018. That group is sponsored by the California Charter Schools Association. Antonio Villaraigosa, the former mayor of Los Angeles, running as a Democratic candidate for governor in California, uh, as mayor of L.A., had a lot of fights with the Los Angeles Unified School District. His principal opponent in the governor's race is Gavin Newsom, who is supported by the California Teachers Association and other teachers unions in California. What is bringing Mr. Hastings to the table here? What is his interest in school choice? And as you two look at this potential matchup of two Democrats in California, what does the potential of the teachers' unions on one side versus the school cho- uh, charter schools association on the other, what does this say about education in California? Well, I would just say that Reed Hastings, uh, from the time he was on the school board, state school board, till today, has had an intense interest in charter schools and choice. He has pushed the idea of expanding choice for schools. And I think it grows out of his business uh, sense that competition has certain advantages, and that's what he's wanting to push. So he has been a long-term supporter. I think that it could be an interesting gubernatorial race because Villa Ragosa um, showed that he wanted to do something with the Los Angeles schools, as you hinted, and worked hard to try to provide a set of schools that did something better than was going on in the past. And so it could be a real clash because the uh, California Teachers Union, um, at least I, I don't know their view on quality of schools, but I know their view is that we shouldn't change anything. Right. So, Mackie, you look at polls of education in California, the voters say one thing, more money for public schools. What should be the conversation, though, in this state when it comes to education? That's a great question. So I actually think that there are three really crushingly important questions that that should be dominating the debate, and I will make the prediction that only school choice will appear in in the campaign. Uh, the first one, obviously, is school choice. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And the, the real nut of the question there is, who gets to decide what best schooling suits a child? And uh, the debate function centers on whether uh, families and parents are, in fact, deemed worthy of that right or not worthy of that right. We obviously have a, a position that we believe that parents should, should, should be allowed to choose. The second issue is uh, actually the, the really difficult impending question about pension reform. You mentioned that there's a great public opinion about more support for schools. But if you look at what's happened with school budgets over the last seven years, the share of a school budget annually that goes to uh, 
debt management on the uh, obligations for pensions has just gone through the roof. It went from 26 percent in 2007 to 72 percent of the budget uh, in 2014. So this is an unsustainable obligation that's just been rolled downstream. It's going to have to be dealt with, and the next governor is going to have to be able to stand up and and be both thoughtful and strong about policy positions. The third one, which I actually don't think is going to show up in the campaign at all, but is, is an equally important policy question, likely to be handled through more policy-centered uh, things like the State Board of Education and the California Department of Education, is the question of teacher preparation and leader preparation. Right. We need new models. Um, California has not been particularly innovative in the way that they train their education professionals. And uh, the time is right for us to take a look at other things. So there's a report coming out in California soon. It's called Getting Down to Facts 2. It's a sequel to Getting Down to Facts 1, which came out in 2007. At about the same time, Arnold Schwarzenegger was declaring 2008 the year of education in California. And what happened to Getting Down to Facts 1? Didn't really get much action, right? The economy was going bad. Lawmakers came up with a lot of excuses, and Rick Hanasek was part of this project. Getting Down to Facts 2 is coming out soon. It includes about three dozen new studies on it. It includes such things as educational adequacy, special education finance, early child education, and there's a component on charter school oversight done by one Mackie Raymond, if I'm not mistaken. This strikes me as a governor sticking his or her head into a fire hydrant and trying to drink in terms of coming out with what to do in education. So. How does the governor prioritize what to do? You just mentioned there are several. I've worked in state government in Sacramento. There's a fundamental structural problem. The governor has an education, there's an education secretary, there's a department of education, 120 lawmakers who think their education secretary plus the governor. Everybody talks about it, all ideas floating around, but how does something actually get done in that state, also given special interests and politics being what they are in Sacramento? That's a really great question. So. <coughs> um, I think, uh, just a moment on the Getting Down to Facts project, um, I do think it's commendable to try to develop uh, some empirical-driven policy papers for the governor or his yes. election team to take a look at. So I, I, I commend the team that's, that's brought that up. Um, having said that, um, even within the papers that are being produced for this effort, there's such a vast amount of detail that there's just going to have to be a really high-level synthesis. And it's I, I'm concerned about what that synthesis looks like. That has not yet been prepared. Right. Because that has the opportunity to shape both direction and tone in a way that the original contributors don't have any control over. So I'm a little bit concerned about that. Mm -hmm. Having said that, the landscape into which all of this lies falls, as you just said, is, is incredibly diverse and lots of pushing and shoving. The thing that I think matters the most here is that the governor and the state superintendent for education, for public instruction, um, have an opportunity to declare a sorting principle on all of these proposals and ideas. And the, and the sorting principle is, is it good for kids? You can look at other states around the country that have had a long history of not paying attention to outcomes and not being particularly good stewards of public resources. And as they have pivoted to the question, is it good for kids, there's actually been a much better alignment of all of these different factions. Right. Because you have to be able to stand up and say, how is it good for kids? This proposal, is it good for kids or is it good for the adults? And so I'm, I'm encouraged that mm, some of the candidates, I think, get that pivotal, the need to pivot to the question. Mm -hmm. And if that 
should come to pass that those people end up sitting in the right seats, I think we can actually have some change. Right. But Rick, what if this report comes out and again, like as the fate of the first time this came out, there's a lack of action. What do you foresee impossible pressure down the road in terms of trying to actually fix schools in California and other states? Do you think we're going to see more groups like the Walton Foundation and, and Reed Hastings and others put their money into, say, ballot initiatives and other, other movements? Or are they going to try to elect candidates? Could they, in effect, start, a, start more of a grassroots rebellion on their own? It's possible that you could have a more grassroots rebellion. California has been quite resistant to any change in the schools. Um, at the same time, it's uh, much like the NCAA that tells you how good they're doing for kids. Um, at the, and you have to listen to them tell what a good job they're doing for kids uh, when in fact they aren't. Um, the problem is that the legislature has to get behind any idea of how to reform things. The governor can provide leadership in that activity mm -hmm. if the governor wishes to do that. But it's such a difficult job that governors back off. So I thought when Governor Schwarzenegger came in, he was not beholding to anybody in the state and that he could provide that leadership. But he soon got burned a bit and then backed off from any leadership. I thought that when Governor Brown came in, he was not going to continue on in office again, and that having been uh, toughened up a bit when he was mayor of Oakland, that he could, in fact, provide leadership. Mm -hmm. But he hasn't done much in that way. Um, so uh, I think it's a matter of getting a different legislature, which is a difficult job. And perhaps we'll see some uh, of the outside organizations investing and in trying to get more moderate legislators that aren't as beholding to established facts. Whether that's possible or not uh, is probably something that you know better than I do, Bill. But uh, I'm, you know, I would like to be hopeful. I'm not sure I am. This is a podcast about the Trump administration, so let me ask you a very simple question. If I could get you 30 minutes in the Oval Office with President Trump, what would you like to tell him about education? I would like him to say that the quality of our schools in this country are going to determine the future of the U.S. And that that means that we have to be focused, as Mackey said before, on what's good for kids and what they're learning. Mm -hmm. The U.S. isn't competitive right now in an international sense in terms of what our kids are learning when they come out of school compared to the vast majority of other developed countries, and that's going to come back and bite us. Now, the federal government has limited control over schools. That's a function of state governments. Right. But the federal government can certainly change the character of the debate and to focus attention. Um, and partly it does this through federal accountability laws, such as uh, started by President Bush. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's sort of been watered down now. And so the federal government uh, doesn't have a real active position, can do a few things around the margin. But it's mainly providing the leadership that says that the future of the U.S. depends 
on the quality of its schools. Now, school choice is a wonderfully elastic term. I could say school choice is charter schools, school choice is vouchers, school choice is tax credits, educational scholarship accounts, homeschooling. How does this administration define school choice? I believe that they think of it as uh, <clears throat> any opportunity to allow parents to drive the ship of education for their children. Mm -hmm. And so all of the things that you just described, and probably a few that we haven't thought up yet, would fall under a school choice. And how do you two define it? Well, so I actually have to be a little bit more cautious in the way that I think about this because you know, ultimately we want students to come out of primary and secondary, secondary education actually knowing stuff, right? And so there has to be some learning standards. And the thing that distresses me in some of the forms of school choice that the current Trump administration is um, positive about is that there's no sense that there's a floor of quality in any of it. And I, rec I recognize that quality assurance automatically bespeaks a regulatory structure, and I'm not excited about that either. But I'm very concerned that we're pushing parents through their dissatisfaction with the existing uh, offerings of, of public schooling into models where they may not be producing students who are ready for anything else after secondary school, and in fact will harm their life chances. So some quality has got to be there. I would just second what Mackey said on that regard. Um, some people say, well, school choice, that's competition. That means free and unregulated markets. And open markets for education can bring in a lot of new entrants, but it won't necessarily squeeze out the bad performers uh, of either the competitive choice schools or the traditional public schools. And I think that we have to have an idea of a, a combination of regulatory aspects that focus on whether kids are learning or not, plus an, an environment that can encourage new and exciting entrants. Thank mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to just uh, amplify on one point. Uh, one of the things that we found in a research study that we did, gosh, 15 years ago now, uh, was that uh, transparency is important mm -hmm. in signaling uh, performance, but it's the combination of transparency and accountability that actually leads to improvement in the public school sector. So if you think about that as sort of a general framework, um, the federal government has uh, returned a lot of the responsibility for accountability back to the states, okay. Um, we're going to see a widening of the range of performance across the states, that's my prediction. Uh, but they still have the opportunity to take hold of transparency. And I would love to see um, a much more robust effort on the part of the U.S. Department of Education to be very transparent about outcomes for students. Yesterday, sorry, Tuesday this week, um, the U.S. Department released the latest NAEP results, the National Assessment of Education Progress. Right. This is a, a periodic testing of fourth and eighth graders to test what they know using a common assessment across the country. Uh, this is one way where we can actually know over time who's doing well and who's doing less well. I think that there are much more granular types of transparency that could actually be a much more potent instrument for change if the federal government would get behind that. So could I pick up a little bit on 
the release of national test data from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. The overall summary is scores are stagnant. And they're stagnant compared to two years ago. Two years ago, they were down compared to four years ago. And the general reaction is sort of, oh darn, we really do have to do better. But in fact, we've been getting that same message since the 1970s when we first started testing students and we've had a stagnant uh, performance and yet there's no sense of urgency that comes out of this. There's no sense that we have to do anything different. And what I hinted at before is that the costs of not doing anything are huge. The costs come in terms of slower economic growth in the future and uh, diminished economic well-being for our population if we don't do anything. Anytime there is a competitive Republican primary for president, you can count on at least one candidate saying what? I want to abolish the Federal Department of Education. What do you say to that? I think it's kind of silly myself. Why? Um, the Federal Department of Education largely dispenses funds that are appropriated by Congress and doesn't have uh, much uh, independent action that it does. It controls and regulates and audits uh, expenditures, but it is not a, a real policy organization because, in fact, the states are the policy makers. I think there's one thing that they actually try to focus on that deserves continuing, and that is that um, they require a, under the education, uh, elementary and secondary education law, it, they require states to pay attention to disadvantaged populations. Mm -hmm. And I think absent a federal department and absent that kind of mandate, uh, we would see even greater disparities in education outcomes across the country than we see now. The uh, achievement gap uh, is strong and pervasive, and what we saw with uh, Tuesday's NAEP results is that uh, mostly they're the same or getting worse, not getting better, only a very, very narrow uh, opportunity, of, uh, evidence of, of improvement. And so the, the federal government keeps feet to the fire in terms of uh, making sure that students who are historically disadvantaged are not forgotten. Okay, so let's apply the Trump question then to Betsy DeVos, the Education Secretary. I give you 30 minutes. Let's give you an hour with Betsy DeVos. The President's time is a little trickier to get than hers. Let's give you an hour with Betsy DeVos. What would you like to tell her in an hour of her time? Same answer as with the President. She uh, has her biggest influence by, in fact, using the bully pul pulpit to push the idea that U.S. schools are important and that it's important that the states are out there. She can use her time to, in fact, underscore what the message is from the NAEP results or what the message is from the international test results that we get every three years. Um, and that's what she should be doing. She should be pushing where we stand, what needs to be done, are there ideas out there that could, in fact, help. Yeah, I'd like to, to reinforce the idea that <clears throat> there is a a sort of a brokering function that, that she could be very, very influential if she took on. And that is, you know, we actually are learning slowly about what works and what doesn't work. And uh, 
it would be great if she would try to take more of a position that policy decisions should be based more on evidence. I realize they will never be exclusively based on evidence, mm -hmm. much to my dissatisfaction. Uh, but she could, she could be an advocate for a more balanced approach to decision making in, in the state level. So let me just pick up on that quickly. Uh, one of the roles of the federal government is to provide a research and evaluation function. And it has been getting much better over the, the last few years, particularly since uh, beginning in the Bush administration, of having a very scientific evaluation service for the government. And this is a natural thing for the federal government to do. Each state shouldn't try to reinvent uh, evaluations and research. That's it. So I look at the American landscape right now, and I see a Republican president. I see a Republican Congress. I see 33 Republican governors nationwide. I see 26 states, Rick and Mackey, that are so-called Republican trifecta states, mm -hmm. Republican governor and Republicans mm -hmm. control the two legislatures. That would strike me as the bank being very open for education reform in America. And I think you are seeing it. It just may, may not be in the directions that we might want. So um, the trifecta states, uh, if you look at what's happening in those states, you're seeing uh, much more a focus on uh, deregulation, fine, mm -hmm. theoretically, uh, a much greater focus on uh, efficiency and making sure that uh, dollars going to education are, are spent wisely. Okay, that's fine too, assuming that the, the enterprise is funded adequately to begin with, which it is not in many of those states. And third, they're looking at uh, trying to figure out a way around this pension liability problem, uh, mostly by trying to uh, sh shave education budgets in order to try to force some rigor in efficiencies. Right. Uh, I'm not sure that any of those uh, address outcomes for kids, uh, and I think they set up the potential for some pretty serious uh, political crises in the coming years. But I don't, think, I don't think that they're sitting around and not doing anything on education. Mm -hmm. I should say that um, just having three branches, branches of government run by the Republicans doesn't guarantee that change is going to be possible. Republicans are subject to many of the same political pressures as Democrats. Right. But you do see, as Mackey says, uh, a number of places where there are smaller changes that are important that don't really get national news, don't appear in the New York Times. Give me an example. Well, I, I think um, one example would be the uh, push in some states to have really serious accountability statutes because they've been given the right to remake accountability, and mm -hmm. a number of states have done that. Another example is that a number of states have changed some of the rules on what can be bargained for in local negotiations, in particular um, whether you can bargain for tenure or what the tenure rules are. Uh, the best uh, or most extreme example, I guess, that did make to the New York Times was Wisconsin. And Governor Scott Walker there, in fact, led to a dramatic change in contracting for teachers. In fact, the, in Wisconsin, teachers can only 
negotiate over pay and benefits. They can't uh, negotiate over class size or school assignments or other things that you would normally think of as management functions. And there's a little bit of evidence that, in fact, uh, the schools in Wisconsin have been getting better since these changes. The, the, the uh, final story has not been written yet, but uh, there's evidence that uh, you can make changes. But this other thing about Wisconsin that you see is that that change came at great cost. It was a very difficult, contentious political uh, battle. Right. It had a recall election. It had all kinds of political activities there that a lot of governors aren't going to be willing to stand up and uh, battle with. Right. That's a good point. Uh, so final question, guys. I look at California, and there's a statistic I look at each year that just breaks my heart, and that is you look at kids going to CSUs, not the UCs, but CSUs, California State Universities, and there are always a staggering number of kids at CSUs in their first year taking remedial courses. They're taking remedial math, remedial English. And this breaks my heart on several levels. First of all, when you should be taking wonderful creative classes in college, instead you're taking high school classes to catch up what you didn't get. It's sad because it's a statement about the quality of education you got in K through 12. It's also sad because maybe it gets into questions of life circumstances and so forth. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to fix K through 12 so that kids are not going into year 13, in essence still doing year 12, year 11, and year 10? So let me uh, first disabuse you of the notion of K-12 because okay. there is now the four-year graduation rate, the five-year right. graduation rate, and the six-year graduation rate. And yet the CSU students still, even those that took six years to get out of high school, mm -hmm. are needing remediation. So, you know, I'm not painting a rosier picture for you by any means. Um, so I, I have to say I have a, a similar heartbreaking reaction as you do. but a different one. I would say I would much rather spend a year at whatever point, whether it's an extra year in K-12 or K-14 uh, or the first year or some mid-zone year in between the two, making sure that students are in fact adequately prepared for post-secondary education. I'd much prefer to make that investment mm -hmm. than the lifelong investment of somebody not being able to complete post-secondary education and move on into the labor force. So yes, it is a, it's an indictment of the quality of the K-12 system that we have today. Other states are taking very aggressive stands on this. For example, there are states where you don't get out of third grade if you don't know how to read. Mm -hmm. And they're making their extra year of investment there. And they're saying it's absolutely okay to repeat third grade because we want you to master the fundamentals of literacy and reading. And I would be totally in favor of making that investment there. There are others that say, okay, I'll, I'll give you an extra couple of years to get out of high school, and hopefully some of those are, are better prepared. Uh, for me, the difficulty is that they're watering down grading in coursework and relying on course grades to qualify students to graduate. And so you have this pernicious cycle of essentially dumbing down the schooling and dumbing down the grading and giving kids credit for half of the work that was required two decades ago, right. and calling that a victory in K-12. So I think that there's a, there's a humility and an honesty that we need in the 
K-12 system about what we are actually producing. The NAEP results are part of that story, but I think that we could go deeper on that. And I think we have to have a different conversation about what the responsibilities are for educators in K-12 to actually produce results. We have never tied any reward of any kind in California to the actual uh, performance of students. And so without that level of accountability, educators don't have the right incentive structures in front of them to say, it's my responsibility to make sure that this kid masters the material. Mm -hmm. Rick? So I would pick up on the last thing that Mackie was talking about. We've been dancing around it all through this talk about accountability and choice and other th ways to try to get the schools improved. The way that happens is by ensuring that there's a high quality teacher in every classroom. The research is very clear that the most important aspect of a quality school is having effective leaders and effective teachers. And we don't do that. We don't make any attempt to look at that question, particularly in California, where it's illegal by state law to match students with teachers for fear that we might, in fact, be able to judge the effectiveness of teachers. There was a lawsuit a few years ago called Vergara versus California that had to do with the fact that the tenure statute, statute which gives teachers tenure after effectively 18 months on the job, that makes it very difficult to remove a tenured teacher. And if you reduce the number of teachers, you have to do it entirely on seniority. You can't take effectiveness into account. The lawsuit argued that these statutes were unconstitutional because, in fact, they meant that certain kids necessarily had to have ineffective teachers in the classroom. Right. At the trial judge level, the trial judge completely agreed with that. At the appellate level, there was a procedural issue that the appellate court brought up that said that uh, this, we have to overturn this ruling for procedural reasons, and the California Supreme Court voted not to hear this case at all. And that sort of summarizes the fact that we're going to turn our back on the quality of teachers because that's just too difficult. Well, if California is going to try to improve the quality of its students one way or another, through accountability, through choice, through direct rewards to teachers, something has to be done to ensure that every kid has an effective teacher. We're not doing that now. Very good. Eric Hanischek, Maggie Raymond, thanks for coming in this morning. It was great to talk to you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Eric Hanischek and Mackie Raymond and their colleagues to your inbox weekdays. 
The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. If you want to learn more about what Rick and Mackey are up to, there's www.credo.stanford.edu. That's where you'll find what Mackey is doing. And there's an entire webpage on the Hoover.org site dedicated to Hoover's CRIT Task Force and its studies on K-12 education. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalum. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.